You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. It's Digital Noise. That's right, Digital Noise. It may seem confusing because here's a voice you've never heard before. Hey. <laughs> I'm John Golson. Hi, John Golson. Hi. Thank you for joining me and becoming part of the new Digital Noise crew. John here, who has actually been on a podcast with us before, although I'll be damned I can remember exactly which it's, one it was. I think it's pre-one of us days. I think it was Spill.com days. Yeah, it's been forever ago. But John is himself a film critic, a wrestling fan, a actor. You've been in several movies, including some that we praised, like, well, I know Martin is a big fan of Zero Charisma. I am, like, too. He loved Zero Charisma. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in, I'm in that. And then I keep waiting on this um, Adult Swim pilot that played at South By called Suplex Duplex Complex. And you were in that? And I'm in it. And it was supposed to air in late spring. And then it won some audience award at South By. And they keep pushing it back and pushing it back. And finding the right... Slot. I, I don't I know, but I'd, I'd love to see it. <laughs> Someday I will. What else? I saw you in something else recently that played a festival um, that was pretty big and well received. But I'm I was. I was. have. I'm blinking. You miss me, and I'm in Slash. Right. Uh, and then that, that uh, was, Hidden America with Jonah Ray. It was Slash. Okay. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah. For the record. And yeah. Zero just Charisma, a cameo. You have a Slash. pretty big role in Zero Charisma, which we we pro- praised. All over the place. We oh, love that movie. Yeah. I own it on DVD. Uh, so do I. I. I bought one myself. Nice. Well, can't say they sent me one. No. So, <laughs> but hey, they didn't call you to be on the Nerdist interview. Uh, no, no. Uh, that was just that was Sam and Andy and uh, and and Katie that got invited out to Nerdist. So weirdly, Sam was doing the show for a while with me. Oh, he was. Yeah, he did it for like six months and then was like, I just I can't. I actually am got. I've gotten lucky and I'm on a bunch of projects now. I've got a bunch of well, films. He was row. just in 68 Kill, which I didn't I see. Um, but I saw the promo pictures with him and Anna Marie. Is it Anna Marie Cord? Is that how you say it? I can't remember. But he's like covered in blood, yeah. like spattered in blood. He and I know pl- that just hit VOD like last. Like, yeah, he plays. We were recording this like a week ago. A giant, crazed, blood soaked, like, like somewhat like mentally deranged brother type yeah. character, you know? I've known Sam for, gosh, now it's going on 11 years. Yeah, I don't remember so, when I first met him, but it's been a while. <laughs> he was a freshman at Savannah College of Art and Design, and we were going SCAD. to school out there. Yeah, we met out in Georgia, and then we both ended up out here in Austin. So. I did not realize you were a SCAD alumni. I have a lot of friends who are SCAD mm-hmm. alumni, so yep. that's cool. I actually went to uh, uh, Savannah to visit one while he was going to school oh, there. Yeah? Yeah, man, Savannah's a beautiful town. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, and he's like, yeah, but you're here at a good time of year. <laughs> you also stayed on the basic college area. Uh, anyway, yeah, so you can see John in lots of stuff. Um, uh, in fact, yeah, I guess that's weird because that's like two people who were in Zero Charisma have now been to Joel Noyes co-hosts. <laughs> Very strange. Anyway, we are going to, of course, talk about all the Blu-rays and DVDs that come out this week. Uh, Just a little bit of a house cleaning before we get started, as you guys are used to. Please click on those links of the images of the movies that we're reviewing on our actual oneofus.net page. If you do that, it will bring you to the Amazon Buy page. And if you buy that movie from that link that you start from, we get a nice little uh, kickback. It's pretty sweet. But in fact, if you buy anything starting from one of these Amazon links, like say you're like, I need a giant double-headed dildo. 
you know what? Start with clicking on, you know, the Zodiac Killer and then type in double-headed dildo and buy it there and we'll still get a kickback from that. It doesn't have to be a double-ended dildo. That was just an example. Also, please become a subscriber. That helps us more than absolutely anything else. I'll always have new content building. We always have, like, boy, just running the site is really expensive. I got to tell you guys, but we certainly love it, and we couldn't do it without your help. So choose a subscriber level, even just signing up with a red shirt, $2 a month, $2 a month for all that content that you love. That helps us enormously, and you get free extra content from that. Now, with all that being said, and with no further ado, let's go on with the reviews. And I think we're going to start off with one here that is um, the exception, not the rule, uh, for the titles this week, called The Exception. Now, strangely, this actually got... The only reason I asked for this is because it got okay reviews. And let's face it, I'd watch almost anything with Christopher Plummer in it. Yeah, it's the first... I think this may be the first time I've ever seen a, a direct, a made for or sold to direct TV original movie. Yeah, it had like the direct TV logo at the beginning, and I was like, "Oh, this is one of those that they offered somehow on their VOD service as like an exclusive." Like, like if you can only see the exception through through DTV, and that's becoming seems like it's becoming more common. I see every day there's a new outlet. So I was like, "Oh, we're just doing that. That's yeah. all you're going to get." It. I'm still shocked that they. They really, I, I, maybe they're right, but they want to sell a whole new streaming network just on the backs of Star Trek, a new Star Trek show alone. I'm like, mm, good luck. <laughs> I suspect you're going to be one of the most torrented shows in history is yeah. what's going to happen. Uh, but anyway, uh, I knew something was wrong right off the bat when I saw the lead characters being played by Jai Courtney, who I would call, he's in my collection of blocks of wood. Oh, you get to see his taint in this movie. Though. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> that was nice. Uh, I didn't expect, so they have a love scene early on where Lily James lets it all hang out, and I was like, and, and Jai Courtney leaves every stitch of clothing on, and I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting that he's having sex with her, and there's like, like they're making a concerted effort to like not show an inch of skin on him, but then later you get to see his taint, and I yeah. was like, okay, all's, all's fair. Always weirds me out in movies with those guys. They lower their pants, presumably just enough to get their thing out, mm. and you're like... Wouldn't that zipper be kind of like, you know, it <laughs> uh, seems really, really not a way anyone has ever had sex for real. But yeah, this is, oh, God help me. It is a love story between an, a Nazi and a Jewish spy, which should be a spoiler. This movie should have been structured so you had no way of, like, there were enough people that you weren't sure. But it gives the game away almost immediately. It's on the back of the box. Yeah. It's on the, like, it's in the synopsis as a selling point. Yeah. I think it, but I think in a way... I think it, weirdly enough, kind of has to be, but even then it wasn't working for me. Because, like, I could tell when I read the synopsis on the back that they dropped that last little bomb that she's actually Jewish as a way for me to justify and go, oh, okay, well, now I'll watch the Nazi romance. <laughs> but it was so difficult for me to want to watch this movie, especially with what's in the news right oh, now yeah. and stuff. I was just like... Man, what a hard sell it is for me to sit down and want to watch, like, Nazis make out for an hour and a half. Like, <laughs> You're not kidding. Um, and they try to make it better by John Courtney being like, oh, he's not a particularly well-liked Nazi because apparently he refused an order at some point, presumably to do something nefariously Nazi-ish. And this still in the sort of, like, like not all the Nazis realize how bad things have gotten. Mm -hmm. Um and he's been sent on a bullshit job, basically, yeah. which is to hang around the castle of exiled German Empire Wilhelm II, played by the 
always amazing. And also here, I think, supremely likable Christopher Plummer, who's living in a castle in exile in the Netherlands. Uh, the Germans are, con- are concerned that spies are going to try and assassinate him or do something to him or use him uh, for propaganda, what have you. So they've sent him there and a few other Nazis in various jobs or Germans in various jobs to uh, just hang about and do nothing, essentially. But he's first thing he's told is, don't mess with the female help. So what is literally the first thing he does? Ten minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I clocked it because I was like, wait, they do they know each other? And I was like, oh, it's ten minutes. Yeah, he gets there and she's like in his room. Like, okay, here's your, your towel and stuff. And he's like, take off your clothes. And I was like, this movie just took a really disturbing turn, even past the whole Nazi thing. Yeah. Just to like, you know, all like almost feels rapey, really. Yeah, it was... Uh... It was a an uncomfortable start to a, a movie I was already reluctant to get on fully on board with, you know. And I know that like it's the thing about cinephiles is like you're supposed to give every movie a fair chance and an open mind and watch it with fresh eyes. And I just I couldn't with this one. I could not. I I read that synopsis and I was like, oh, geez. And it went to the bottom of the stack and I was like, I'll get I'll get to it. And then when I did, I was like. Uh, the only, you know, at some point, um, there was a, a kind of a point of no return for me in regards to, to taste, which was, uh, there's a, a scene where they're making love and there's a dissolved shot to like a pile of dead bodies that felt so tonally off and kind of wrong and mixed the weird eroticism that we'd already seen with like the horrors, the actual horrors of World War II. And I never, that I never got around to finding out if the exception referred to Jai Courtney as being the only good Nazi, or if the exception referred to Lily James as being the only uh, Jewish housekeeper worth having sex with. (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know where the title came from. It, it reached a point of almost feeling like it was about to turn into Hogan's heroes. When Eddie Marsan shows up as like Heinrich Himmler, who's there just to basically make sure everything's going the way it's supposed to go. And there's a series of like, we're kind of dancing around him that not everything is doing. No one is not. Everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And of course, you know, you question the whole time. There should be a subtle touch to like, why these two, why the, Why she would be willing to actually have feelings for this guy. You get why as a spy she might go, oh, it's helpful for me to, yes, I will be involved with this guy because it's good for me, you know, doing what I need to do. But she clearly is supposed to be falling for him and you're like, what? What? Why? I get it's he... because he has scars on his belly. Yeah, he has a lot of that's, scars. That's the big selling point is, oh, he's he too has been wounded by the horrors of war. <laughs> and I was sort of like, oh, okay, like... It it doesn't sell. I think is is the nice way of putting it. It yeah. doesn't it doesn't really work. And the only thing that does really work here is whenever Christopher Plummer is on screen uh, issuing pithy bon mots that may or may not be a sign of him slowly getting uh, addled. But mm. like he's charming. But he's that's what he does. He's Christopher Plummer. He's supposed to be charming. Um, I I can't recommend this movie to anybody. Not even Nazis. <laughs> Jai Courtney taint fans. Jai Courtney taint fans. Yes. If they are out there, I would recommend this movie to them. Uh, so I hate to say it, but we are going to have to talk about Charlotte. And it's not – the exception is one of the worst – one of the two movies I liked the least this week, which is to say we have some movies I really did like this week. 
Uh, Charlotte is is close in that top three of the bottom, but there are some sparks of imagination here. <laughs> the top three of the bottom. Yeah, top three of the bottom. There's some sparks of imagination in this very low-budget horror anthology. I gotta say, I thought I would hate it. Like, hate with a capital H. It really, you know, you and I have attended a lot of film festivals of varying stripe. And we've seen a variety of short films of all different types of quality. And I really felt like, other than the film's obvious, like, cash grab to, to like, hold on to Annabelle creation and, like, the sort of, yeah. uh, you know, evil doll stuff that works as a framing device for all these short films inside the actual movie, I felt like most of the shorts, more or less, were of the caliber that I've seen at film festivals. Yes. Um, as, as a whole, it doesn't make for a particularly great movie. <laughs> no. But... I, you know, it was a pain, it was relatively painless experience as far as that stuff goes. Yeah, I mean, like the the wraparound story is the thing that you assume the whole movie is about about yeah. a, a evil doll, which is what the cover sells it as. Which is even the back is deceptive about like that this is actually oh, yeah. an anthology film, and it's a it's the sort of micro shorts like like a what's the one the Alamo Draft House produced with all the real oh, short, like short blood shots the uh, ABC, 48 hour the ABCs, ABCs of, of death. death yeah yeah it's very short shorts and some of of them are kind of cute. Like, oh, that's funny. Like, there's one with, yeah. like, evil Girl Scouts that I thought was quite amusing. Yeah. But there's a lot of them you're like, you didn't even have an ending for this. You just went, boom! Yeah. And there was no wrap-up whatsoever of any kind. I don't know what was going on here with the, the way they chose to to pick which shorts they thought worked and which didn't. But um, uh, Charlotte is a, a desperation horror pick. I didn't recognize anybody in it except for Roma Mafia from Disclosure and Nip Tuck. And she shows up in it in the second segment. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I like her. Like, she's a good actress. Mm -hmm. And so I went on IMDb. According to the internet, this movie just straight up doesn't exist. I couldn't find I couldn't it either. Find anything I, about it. I spent twenty minutes looking for an just an IMDb page. Would yeah. you figure? I mean, nope. like shit. I've been There's in movies one. that have an IMDb page. Even even the people who made the movie don't have this listed on the credits. <laughs> like Patrick Ray, who's like the, he's the wraparound director and did I think most of the segments, probably about seventy percent of the shorts that are in here. Yeah, doesn't list Charlotte. Uh, I all I could find was some other horror website listing this as a home video release. Right. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't find any information about the making of it, how it came together, whether the shorts had played at other film festivals. I, I nothing I could find out about this. That's movie. bizarre too. I've I've never found a movie I couldn't at least find an IMDb chapter yeah. for. Why would? Because <laughs> it's not even bad enough to not put on your IMDb page. I see stuff all the time worse than Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Why would you? Is there was this made by Jai Courtney and the exception? Was he the Nazi who secretly made this film? I do not know, but uh, that answer will have to wait. So the upshot of this is the only thing I could find even that, that proves that I'm not crazy. This film actually exists and is in my hands. Is a site called DVDCompare.net had a review of it and a very weirdly. Um, structured one in terms of like how they chose to place the text but that's neither here nor there that's just me being a, a bitchy little snark as a website guy myself you know it's i don't know what else to say about this film except this is one of those ones you kind of just put on as background while you're doing something else and it might have a few amusing moments 
it's going to end up hurting itself by tying it to the killer doll stuff because I think a lot of people that would give this movie a shot on on home video are going to do it so that they can see scary doll stuff and that stuff is the least of the whole thing. I mean, it really is a short film showcase and if you if you watch it with that in mind, I think you'll get more out of it than than going in with uh with the idea you're going to watch, you know, this little it that's it doesn't even look like the doll that's in the movie no, on the it cover. Doesn't on the cover. Um, <laughs> but it's not a killer doll film. So I expect a lot of one-star reviews coming to Amazon that are basically people yelling that the pack that the package doesn't uh doesn't advertise the contents. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, if you're hardcore, I watch everything that comes out in horror. You'll probably recommend rec- recognize a lot of people in this from like minor roles and other arguably bigger horror films, but honestly, who cares? I can't recommend Charlotte, but I mean, what the hell? I guess if it came on Netflix or Shudder or something and you were like, I got nothing better to do. (laughs) You're not going to be totally miserable. Let's talk about a film that people did scream and yell about a lot when it originally came out of how much they hated it um, and has since gained kind of a cult following, and that is The Zodiac Killer. This is from 1971, and this is indeed about the murders committed by the Zodiac Killer, who was never caught in real life, although God knows there's plenty of theories online about who he actually was. And this movie takes a I believe, if I remember correctly, an incredibly obscure, un- highly unlikely theory about who he was and writes a lot of fiction around it to tell a story that's not really the hunt for the Zodiac Killer. You're just kind of following around the Zodiac Killer. And it was apparently designed to be Zodiac bait. Uh, yes. He, had, he, at the time, was still an active killer and it had been created to lure him into a movie theater. They thought he would show up at the premiere and that they would catch him at the premiere. Yeah. Uh, Which is bizarre. You're like, this the filmmaker, I'm an amateur uh, sleuth, and I figure this is the best way to kill, ca- capture the Zodiac Killer is make a schlock fest with some of the most laughable dialogue I may have seen in any film to actually play a theater ever. Like, what the fuck is going on moments? It's really curious as a like almost a companion piece to Fincher's Zodiac because there's so much overlap. There's scenes you recognize because because he does the moments that that actually happened in in real life, mm-hmm. but it's done with that like grimy, almost like grindhouse, no budget amateur filmmaking. You know, 1970s you played some 24 hour theater somewhere style. But then you recognize whole scenes that align to Fincher's <laughs> Zodiac. Right. And I kind of liked it in that regard. It almost played sort of like uh, the the Raiders fan film to Spielberg's movie. Right. It almost played as like this like cheapy crap version of what Fincher had done. And so there was like a layer of it that... Uh, I found myself appreciating it more than I thought I would just based on the quality. Because it started off and I was like, oh, this is going to be rough. Like, this is going to be a rough ride. (laughs) About halfway into it, I got kind of charmed by its funkiness. Sort of like, you know, with us both living in Austin, we've been 
privy to a lot of films like this. I mean, this mm-hmm. comes from what the American film genre archive. Yeah, or who whatever, just so. lately have started aggressively re-releasing stuff like this. Yeah, and isn't that it? What didn't aren't the roots of that here in town? I uh, want to say that they are. Yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure. I thought I thought it was started well, here where people I, were amassing prints and sort of like putting them in a warehouse. I think that didn't the Alamo here. premiere the yeah. the 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 35 millimeter re-release of this? I believe. Oh, they may have. They may have. But but we've seen stuff like this at Terror Tuesday and we're yeah. Wednesday. So for I feel like for Austinites or for people that live in cities that do like oddball repertory screenings, that this is like completely in line with those kind of schlock movies. Um, yeah, but uh, to say the least. I would say if you haven't seen Zodiac, there'd be no reason to ever watch the Zodiac Killer. But if you've seen Zodiac, I almost highly recommend watching the Zodiac Killer as sort of like. Uh, the alternate homebrew version of, <laughs> of what David Fincher created. By the way, it is from Austin, Texas. It is a non-profit profit that uh, Tim and Carrie League are indeed involved, as is Paul Thomas Anderson, Anna Biller, Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, the RZA, uh, uh, Lisa Petrucci, Zach Carlson, of course, and Lars Nielsen, who I'm sure, like, they probably think this should have won an Oscar. <laughs> Maybe so. You know those guys yeah. as well as I do. They're like, this is so much better than anything that's come out in oh, the past Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they consider it better, <laughs> superior to Fincher's Zodiac. I'm sure they probably do. <laughs> On the special features, there's a whole other movie. Uh, yes. There's a, a film called Another Son of Sam. I watched about three or four minutes of it. It was I think I got about from the same cloth. As I think Zodiac I got Killer. about fifteen minutes for. I was like, I can't watch this right after I watched. Yeah, the and that was my Killer. deal. I just I was like, it's that's too much for right now. So, <laughs> but I, I do think it's a good value. You are getting you are getting two movies for the price of one. It's not even. The thing isn't even necessarily packaged as a double feature, but no. that's essentially what it is. And you get an interview with the director that's on here. Uh, there's a collection of, of other very similar type film tabloid trailers, which I love that kind of thing. I'm a, I have whole discs that are nothing but three hours of like like schlocky trailers because yeah. they're just so much fun. Uh, there's an on-camera interview with the director and the producer, an audio commentary with the director and producer, and then a booklet, pretty big booklet with liner notes. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of work to go into the Zodiac Killer film. Uh, the director Tom Hansen, I thought he was the best. He was, I thought he was one of the best, most natural actors in the film as well. He shows up for a second as a uh, a cook at a diner, <laughs> and then is killed in the car. But he 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 doesn't have like a lot of scenes, but compared to everybody else in the cast, yeah. and he apparently he was the only one that it really had. I mean, uh, watching that interview, they talk about the fact that they called in favors from friends and family and stuff like that. Um, As you do when you make a film this low budget. Yeah, and, and so it doesn't surprise me that the one person who'd been in actual real movies before acquitted himself nicely. He's he's a he's a fine actor. I don't know how he is as a writer-director. He he's, was in uh, a couple yeah. movies before this. This was his only directorial day, uh, effort that I see, and I don't think that's terribly surprising. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he had some porn credits somewhere after yeah. this. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's got a certain schlocky charm to it, for sure. And if you this, that's your type of thing, this is a solid release of this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on to a movie I actually really enjoyed, uh, The Transfiguration. And I know it had been getting a lot of strong back and forth, very strong feelings about it in the horror press and in, just indeed in the independent press. And it's partially because, A, any horror film that's released sort of as an art horror re- reveals very strong feelings from multiple sides. And this feels like a sort of like a an ethnic version of Martin. Yeah, yeah. 
not Martin Thomas, George, George Romero's Martin, the film. If you've never seen, you really should. And I can't believe there's not a really great recent Blu-ray re-release of that movie. Yeah, so I knew nothing about this one. Um, as a matter of fact, not only did I know nothing about this, the the screener that I watched it on came in a plain white envelope, so I didn't ha- even have the advantage of like knowing a synopsis. Um, there's a little bit of key art on the uh, on the disc that evokes Nosferatu, but I really had no idea what the movie was about when I went to put it on. Um, and you know, you bring up Martin. Um, there, there. It is very similar to Martin. It's also very similar to Let the Right One In. Yes. Uh, and I think, like, kind of problematic. I hate using the word problematic. I know, me too. But sometimes there's no other word. Is that I? I wish they would have avoided bringing it up in dialogue within the movie itself. Um, there's actually the character, they they ask the character what his favorite vampire movies are. The character, like, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but the character um, believes that he is a vampire. He's a Milo. young boy. Yeah, Milo, uh, uh, living in, in New York City, isn't it? I believe it is New York City. Yeah, um, and uh, he meets this girl, and uh, she's just moved into the, the apartment that he's in. They kind of become fast friends. They're both sort of damaged goods, and, and Milo is obsessed with vampire films and vampire lore and believes that in his heart of hearts that he's a vampire. Hmm. Um, there's a moment where she asks him what his favorite vampire movies are, and he mentions Martin, and he mentions Let the Right One In. And I was kind of like, it's interesting that they name drop the two movies that this is most like and i don't know if they thought that that would sidestep any comparisons Hmm. but it weirdly to me was like the wrong key on a piano Hmm. i was kind of like i wish they weren't saying yes we know that this film is like this and like this or that in general i agree that if they didn't keep naming vampire movies, it keeps bringing you into yeah. this is another vampire movie that we're watching. What I did like about this, though, is like exploring. Like I said, he's a young black kid. Uh, people beat up on him all the time because he's different. There's like his older brother doesn't really understand him and is formerly from a gang. There's a lot of gang stuff going on around him that he doesn't want anything to do with. But it's hard not to be pulled into it when it's everywhere around you. Uh and I found that actor very charming and very engaging while he, he was still playing it down to earth. You did feel for him, which is unusual because we see this isn't a slow build like I think I'm going to kill someone. I'm afraid I'm going to kill someone. No, he's been killing people. He's been going out and stabbing them in the neck with a pen knife and drinking their blood and getting away with it partially because, man, it's, the, it's, it's a shitty part of town and nobody cares. Yeah. You know, um, I think the subtext is is here – and it's strong-ish, but it doesn't dominate the character-driven drama either. I kind of wish it had come to a more satisfying ending, though. Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, it's very New York indie film. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything about it, from the the kind of soundscape to the way it's shot to the the performances, feel very very much like any kind of like art house, grimy New York indie, naturalistic like a one. Yeah, very naturalistic, um, and. And it's unflinching as well in its violence. It's not afraid to go there when it has to. Um, but ultimately, I don't know if I thought that it did anything better than the films that it already compares itself to. Mm-hmm. I thought the cast, like, 
the setting's interesting because it's not a film that you see. It's not the type of film that you see that would star a like fifteen year old black kid. Yeah. Um, and so the casting makes it interesting, but I'm not sure outside of the casting there was anything story wise that I felt really pushed it through to something that that where I could say it was something really special versus something that's not bad. Yeah, you know? I, I think it is. It's. I would go a little step further, but I'm not bad. I think it's good, but it feels like a first effort. And in fact, it is a first effort from writer-director Michael O'Shea. You know what it reminded me a little bit of? There's kind of a forgotten 90s uh, sort of a crime drama called Fresh. Do you remember Fresh? It's like Boaz Yakim. It's got uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson in it, but it's about this... I know what you're talking about. I don't it's about this young boy it. who, um, you know, is sort of navigating... Uh, the the world of being a, a kid in New York City kind of amongst these gangs and he ends up developing a plot with which to uh, damage the gangs mm-hmm. and uh, and some of it brought back good memories of Fresh which was a movie they didn't name drop in the film because no. there's no vampires in Fresh no. but only was, vampire movies but there was, at it's best there were things about it that I was like oh that's kind of like Fresh and then I was like man nobody talks about Fresh anymore <laughs> so uh, so I recommend Fresh. Um, <laughs> You're just a little more mixed on the Transfiguration. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm literally mixed. I'm literally like right in the middle on it. I, I, I think that there's, I think it's worth watching, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth watching and kind of deciding for yourself. And I actually found the subtext kind of murky because I didn't know. It, it you get into dangerous territory when you start talking about black people being a vampire, a societal vampire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you position like the white, your white character in the movie as sort of being like, because it's him and he's just straight up a killer. And you know that from like the opening scene of the movie, like he's killing people. And then you have all the other black characters are all gang members. His brother being a former gang member. And then you have this white character who's like, she's a victim of circumstance and it doesn't do as good of a job, I don't think, making the other characters victims of circumstance. And because of that, I think it messes with the subtext. And it, it, if it doesn't take, I, I would not want to draw the conclusion that the filmmaker's intent was anything about uh, black people being vampires on society and feeding off of society. Right, right. Um, but because there's not enough to support any other ideas, it's too quick a road to go down based on what's in here. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's what his intent is. No. It's, but I wish that there was, I wish there were other paths for my mind to take yeah. for me to figure out, well, what's he really, <laughs> what's he really getting at here? Like, because what's it he, is, it's an interesting character piece, mm-hmm. but because of that setting and because of that, that, that juxtaposition, like, there feels like there has to be more here. Well, yeah, because he's stealing from affluent white people. Like, yeah. he's, he's killing, he has... I think most, I think all of his victims are white. I think so too. Uh, so he's killing white people. He's t- stealing from the white people. He's, he's taking their cash and their valuables and and hoarding them away. Um, so there's weird, there's like weird subtextual things that happen through the casting, and I don't, I don't, yeah, not sure I understand. Exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I do either. Uh, but, but watch it. I but you can tell the it. director must be friends with some people in horror industry before this because Larry Fessenden and Lloyd Kaufman Dude. both make a cameo. So <laughs> Fessenden's profile, like his silhouette. I knew it was him instantly. Like, yeah. you see him from 
across the street and like almost in complete darkness. And I was like, is that Larry Fessenden? <laughs> it was. I think something like seven out of ten horror films that I actually review on the show feature a Larry Fessenden cameo somewhere <laughs> in them. <laughs> Lloyd Kaufman, a little more rare, but you know. All right, so let's move on to the next one. And I am kind of a big fan of this one, and I yeah. didn't think I would be at all because the trailer was god-awful. It has some of the worst CG I've seen in a Chinese action film. Uh, this is Jackie Chan's latest Kung Fu Yoga. Another, I mean, you can't come down on a Chinese film for having a title this dumb because most of them have titles It's a really that bad dumb. title. It's, it, it's a bad title because it's simply, it's a, mov- it's, it's a movie that features a primarily Chinese and Indian cast. And it's like, well, we can't call it Chinese and Indian. So what do we call it? How about Kung Fu and Yoga? They Kung sh- Fu Yoga should have called it Armor, uh, or I'm sorry, Operation Condor Three, because yeah. that's what it is. That's I, I thought so much that it was. It must have been another Armor of God sequel that I went yeah. and actually looked up to find out. Oh, is this? A, is this? Or that's what I meant. Something? Yeah, yeah. Because Operation yeah, yeah. Condor, no, is the Operation second Condor one. Is yeah. second one. Yeah, I totally got what you what you meant. Um, but yeah, I, I actually had to look and see cause I was like, oh, this, it Did must they, be, it's treasure yeah, hunting. Yeah. Like, cause you're gotta like, be. he's still called Jackie yeah. as he is as most of his films regardless. But, uh, like, yeah, it's treasure hunting, but with spy stuff as well. I mean, it's Jackie Chan playing. He's a renowned professor of archeology, span uh, studying the terracotta warriors. He teams up with a just drop dead, gorgeous Indian professor, uh, uh, named Ashmita, who is played by a very apparently well-known Indian actress, Disha Patani. Man, she's just, un- every time she's on screen, you're like, I can understand why you're a huge superstar. In, she wasn't computer-generated? No. Uh. I know. She was perfect enough. You were like, oh, wow, I, mean, I don't think she's real. Um, so she basically brings a missing piece to a long-held, like, oh, where is this treasure type thing? Anyway, it's very... It's a lot of generic, that's not surprising stuff with building what they do and getting to where they need to get how they do. What does work as well as it does is, A, even with the CG, the comedy is kind of tight here. Like, there's a whole sequence with a CG lion in the back of a car that Jackie Chan's driving that is literally getting nauseous because they're driving, like, he's just spinning around so much that, I mean, never for a second looks like a real lion, and I still laughed watching it. I think it's important that this movie opens with like this, you know, six or seven minute fully computer animated sequence that looks straight up like Dynasty Warriors Part 25 yeah. for PS4. Yeah. Like, it's all, the opening is literally all computer animated to the point that they're not even trying to pass it off as reality. It's a flashback in history yeah. showing the story of this diamond and this war. And I think that that's it ends up being a really smart move that I'm not sure was 100% intentional, but it makes it where the cartoony stuff becomes almost more palatable because they've started the story with a cartoon. Yeah. Uh, and so when you see CG lions and CG hyenas and, and some of the, you know, and the movie as well is like, the way it's shot is like, I probably haven't seen a movie with that many colors displayed on screen since Speed Racer. Right. Like, everything is really, really high-key and literally rainbow-colored from wall to wall in, on your TV screen. I mean, it makes the whole thing very entertaining to watch, and it doesn't hurt as well. Like, just the stunt choreography here mm-hmm. is some of the more fun work I've seen from Chan and his group of people in quite some time. And I've watched at least his last 15 movies, most of which were not that great. This is one of the better ones he's done for that. When you're watching the very traditional style Jackie Chan comedy action, this is this is how it's done right. 
Yeah. I really enjoyed these action scenes. I really enjoyed the incredibly elaborate, like almost out of a James Bond movie, but if someone threw like a, a couple paints, uh, uh, cans of paint on top of it, like scenes. I mean, they really, they go from one really neat setup to another that's only really marred by, well, A, the same stuff you expect from most Jackie Chan movies, a kind of ridiculously absurd plot, but whatever, mm. you knew what you were getting into when you rented a Jackie Chan movie. And B, like I said, those points of painfully bad CG. There's a whole sequence in a hyena cage that intermixes real hyenas with CG hyenas, and uh, it looks like a few practical things. And it's you can tell immediately what, what which is which at any yeah. given moment. <laughs> but it's still a funny scene. I was a huge Jackie Chan fan right as they brought him stateside. And I used to go rent his older films and watch whatever came out new that they would import over here, mm-hmm. whether it was First Strike or Super Cop, Operation Condor, Twin Dragons, like Me too. Drunken Master, whatever was getting a theatrical release at that time from mostly Dimension uh, or, and New Line were all movies I'd go see. When he started doing like the quasi-American stuff mm-hmm. is when I really kind of like became less enamored of Jackie Chan yeah. uh, as a performer. Uh, the tuxedo and kind of like that era. Yeah. I liked Shanghai, uh, Shanghai Noon okay. But yeah. short of that, I wasn't a fan of the Rush Hour series at all. Me neither. Um, and so I, I'd fallen away. So it had honestly been, it's been, it has to have been decades. It is decades. I mean, I know I haven't, I haven't been into it since that era of like Mr. Nice Guy and First Strike and all that kind of stuff. Right. And this felt comfortably at home with those movies. It was kind of dopey. It's really fast paced. Mm. Uh, and it was never not totally watchable. It's it a, was, it's, it's just one of those, you just, it's junk food. You, it's a tight yeah. 107 minutes yeah. that never fails to know exactly how to keep you in your seat and entertained as dumb as it is. Who cares? This yeah. is fun. Um, I will say it, I laughed out loud at the end of this movie because you forget that you're watching a Bollywood cross-production, but Jackie Chan didn't. And at the end of this film, like, really, the movie's not even really totally wrapped up yet. And they're like, ah, fuck it. Let's all dance. Yeah. I mean, including the villain who's like, I screwed up. Let's all sing and dance together. And it's just a big, colorful, elaborate song and dance number with everyone who was in the cast. And it's actually fun because it's just as absurd as the rest of the movie that yeah. it's even in there. Uh, there's a decent amount of extra features, but nothing's really that long. They're just little EPKs. Uh, they, I mean, the longest one is the making of with some behind-the-scenes stuff. But there's nothing that makes owning this essential. But I would definitely put this on your – if you were ever a Jackie Chan fan, this is one you're going to want to seek out. And, and I think you'll enjoy. Uh, next up is Wolves. There's actually several movies that called just Wolves. Wolves, one of which came out in 2014, which is a horror film. This is not a horror film. This strangely is a uh, sort of sports underdog sort yeah, of film. It's an inspirational basketball movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll tell you the reason I, I even said, yeah, I want to see that is because Michael Shannon plays one of the leads. And you're like, well, how bad could it be? Right. It's Michael Shannon. It's not even so much that this movie is bad. It just doesn't have anything new to offer in any way. But once they introduced... Uh, Michael Shannon's character's gambling problem, I went, this is going to happen. And I said it out loud. My girlfriend was watching it with me. And then that is exactly where the movie went. Like, like then we sat and waited and an hour, hour and a half later, that's what happens in the movie. Any character having a gambling problem, like even insinuated they like to gamble, then that's going to take over a film at one point. If a character ever coughs 
they're dying of something is going to take over a film <laughs> at some point, you know? And it is one of those things with this one where you see he plays the dad of a high school kid who's like, yeah, an up and coming basketball. He's going to be a basketball star. He's about to be scouted. His mother, Carla Guagino, always turns in a strong performance. Here she's just not given much to do. She's sort of his, should be more of the defense between him and his father, but even then she doesn't seem to really, like either that or be like the terribly beat upon wife, but she's really neither. She's just kind of there. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And Michael Shannon's interesting in that I think sometimes, I, I actually think it's a, casting him in this role, it's almost a detriment. I think that there's, I think that there's, roles in which he actually squeezes the humanity out of a role. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is one of those that with a different actor, there's there's a weight of sadness or empathy that come along with it. But you kind of hate him, like, from go. And it, yeah. and, and it's almost as if the, the sheer casting of him is, has, has forced, like, toothpaste out of a tube, whatever feelings you would have for this person, like feeling sorry for him or, or understanding him at all. You never really get any sense he has any redeeming qualities. Yeah. I mean, even though he's an English professor, we thought we'd see something like, he's so good as a teacher. Never really even get that feeling, that he's that. Um, and his relationship is so cantankerous with the kid right from the beginning of just kind of like, hey, I'm your buddy, until I start to get drunk and pissed off, and then I might hit you. You know you know right from the beginning that the stumbling block that's going to happen to this kid getting where he wants to do go is his father. And mm -hmm. indeed, there's no surprises there. Honestly, the only surprising thing here is how terribly mishandled the mystical magical negro part of this film is which is as my friend martin thomas always calls it like introduce out of nowhere a black character with some wisdom here literally named socrates who apparently is an old basketball player who kind of at much reluctance of the high school kid befriends him to give him his advice and his whole storyline never really seems to add up to anything or go anywhere no and as much as he acts as much as he acts it there's a scene in a Burger King where he's yelling and he's giving like the big emotional speech and the words are literally meaningless. Mm -hmm. He's acting the shit out of them. Can I say that? Can oh, I yeah. say that S word? You can say show? anything you want. Uh, <laughs> he's acting the shit out of the words, but they're meaningless words. Like it's just like what are you even what are you even saying? Like mm -hmm. what 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 is this inspirational speech? Just you know, do your best. Like, this, like, doesn't, what is this? Yeah. It's not even, it's because it's not even that. It's sort of like, um, are you, are you going to, are you going to let anger push you or are you going to let anger take you to, to, on to new roads and new heights? And I'm like, what? This like, could... what's the difference? That's sort of splitting hairs. <laughs> and why wouldn't your inspirational speech be about moving away from the anger or finding different ways to channel the anger? But it ends up being nonsense about, like, don't don't let the anger push you. Let it float you like a leaf or whatever. And I was like, this is nonsense words. It all feels so first drafty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there, there's a story here, but you're not close enough to it yet to just go ahead into the filming part. This is from a director who should know better, Bart Frundlich, who's got a pretty sizable career, both with directing a bunch of episodes of Californication and Mozart in the Jungle, but made the movie The Myth of Fingerprints, which even got a wide release. Um, i kind of surprised that it's as thoroughly amateurish a movie as it is. In fact, I'm just more than anything surprised that Michael Shannon agreed to be in it. I think I like it a little bit more than you. It's I I'm not quite sure based on the cast and the fact that it's so 
it's such an easy to to digest movie. Mm-hmm. It seems almost like it apparently played festivals and then like a year and a half ago, and that this home video release almost feels a little bit like a dump, which I found kind of surprising based on the cast and based on it also being the kind of movie that uh, like my parents would like. You know what I mean? Or like. Uh, the kind of movie that you would turn on cable and watch the whole thing and be like, oh, okay. I watched some Michael Shannon basketball movie. I don't even know what it was called, but it was on TV. This and just I made it. me want to turn it off and watch Hoosiers, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why am I watching a mediocre basketball movie and when I could watch a really great one? Um, yeah, there's just not enough here. Yeah, one thing I'll compliment, I'll give this. So when they're actually filming the basketball games, they feel very real. They don't feel like you're watching a Hollywood basketball game. It feels like you're watching a real basketball game with, in the middle of it, some degree of real stakes. But, you know, that's faint praise. And- I also haven't watched Atlanta, and so this was my introduction to Zazie Beats. Yes, I've only watched uh, the first couple episodes. As of- a comic fan, you know, she's she's been in the news lately for playing Domino and yep. Deadpool 2, so this is my introduction to her as an actress, and she's fine. Yeah, she's fine. So- yeah, not nothing that you like would rave about, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she's great in Atlanta. Everybody says she is, yeah. so and hopefully will be great as De- as a uh, uh, Domino. Let's move on to one of my favorite films this week, and partially because I grew up loving this movie to pieces. Oh, I, really? I saw this film with my dad in the theaters in 1980 because uh, wow. he was a big fan of act- the actor Walter Matthau, uh, which I was at this point completely, at least I think so, completely unfamiliar with. For whatever reason, as a a 10-year-old kid, this movie charmed me completely. And I I have not seen it since then. So watching this Criterion re-release of this movie, Hopscotch, I found it maybe not as charming as I did then, but still pretty goddamn charming. (laughs) Walter Matthau playing a guy who was, you know, a a very likable spy for the CIA. Uh, He was a field agent. And basically, his boss is like, well... We're going to kind of phase you out. Your your protege, played by Sam Waterston from, of course, The Law and Order, best known, is uh, going to take over for you, and we're going to kind of put you out to pasture, uh, boss being Ned Beatty. Well, Walter, Walter Matthau's character is like, well, I don't want to do that, so instead I'm going to go into hiding and write this explosive tell-all memoir about my years at the CIA – but largely, I'm just doing it to fuck with these guys. So this is a comedy film pretty much straight up with some action-ish sequences. I mean, I would definitely wouldn't yeah. call it a comedy action. But and it's it's almost like it's not really – I got the feeling that there's not really anything explosive in his memoirs as much as if he positions himself – to use this, uh, use the writing of these memoirs as a taunt against Ned Beatty's, uh, was it Meyerson? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the best, like, he knows he can get a lot of juice out of basically pissing Ned Beatty off, <laughs> like, just traveling from place to place and, like, pretending. Uh, it's not even pretending, it's sort of like, it's just, it's taunting him. He's yeah. like, he's, he's, he is globetrotting and, and sort of signaling wherever he is uh, just to piss off the people that were in power. Well, he's like, and everybody is like, he really is one of the best of us. Mm-hmm. Like, he's been doing this a long time and almost nobody is better than him. But he's also the type of guy we see in the beginning who, like, chooses to let the Russian agent, the older Russian agent who he, like, has caught red-handed trying to pass off information, chooses to let him go, which pisses off Ned Beatty because he's been working against this guy for decades and they have a sort of 
understanding relation. Like, it's not what good is it going to do for us to try and bring you in? It's yeah. just going to make things worse. Played by the wonderful Herbert Lom, who you're like, I don't know that name. He was pretty much, he was the pink, uh, Inspector Clouseau's boss in the Pink Panther movies who eventually went crazy and turned into the bad guy. Just a wonderful character actor. And here is like, yeah, I, I love that guy. He's great. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's my nemesis, but I really like him. I, everybody really likes him except Ned Beatty. Even Sam Watterson is constantly like, Will you please just let this go? The only reason he's this is like why he's like the parent between two kids. It's like you're just provoking him. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's also a quality to it that I think comes out of like you know we're so used to seeing in film like uh, FBI agents and CIA agents sort of being like stoic, almost superheroic types. Mm-hmm. And here you have somebody where it's like it definitely it, there's an element to this movie where it brings it back down to earth as. A job someone could enjoy and have fun with. And when you see him in the opening scene, he's enjoying himself, and he gets back the little piece of microfish, and he's sort of, you know, they have, uh, again, the relationship that he has with the Herbert Lom character feels like they've known each other forever because they've probably traveled in the same circles and kind of that thing. And so there's an acknowledge, a friendly acknowledgement, a professional acknowledgement. And then when he goes to the office in the scene immediately after that, He's just, hey, how's it going? Hey, you know, and everybody's like saying hey back to him. And it's just like, it'd be like any job, walking into the door of any job that you love. All these people are your friends. You're friendly with all of them. They all think you're you're a great guy. <laughs> yeah. On a very natural level, like not, not, not a hugely comedic level. It ends up being comedic on film because it's not something that we ever see. Mm-hmm. But it's something we've all experienced. We've all known that person that's walked into work where you're like, oh, hey. Hey, he's here, and that's exactly the way it's treated. Mathau plays a super spy as an everyman, yeah, which is a bizarre choice. I don't know if we've ever seen it anywhere but this. Yeah, you know, this is something you would have pictured if they had made this in, say, nineteen eighty six or nineteen eighty seven. They might have cast in the middle of filming. Uh, 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 what the hell was Bruce Willis's big show? Moonlighting. They might have said, "Oh, this is a good young Bruce Willis role." That the everyman spy. Um, also, I must note here, Glenda Jackson, who plays like a, a, a longtime love interest who now he's sort of like, well, now that I don't, not official spy anymore, we can kind of like, we'll spend some more time together as long as you help me play this little fun game I'm doing is great here and a lot of fun to watch. I, I just, that's the thing about this movie. It's not, it's not wildly fast paced, but it's fast paced enough. It's got a lot of uh, chuckles. Very few laugh out louds, with the exception of one sequence where he's basically making Ned Beatty destroy his own vacation home. Yeah, <laughs> that that's quite funny. But I, I just highly recommend this. I think this is kind of a minor classic. Well, there's also a big influence on uh, Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading, which deals with a CIA agent and a memoir that may or may not be completely explosive and everyone kind of like chasing the memoir, which really turns out to be sort of nothing in the end. Yeah. And, and I felt like you could see uh, this revealed the DNA of Burn After Reading to me. I'd never seen Hopscotch before, but watching this was one of those like aha moments. Like it was definitely, a, this is this is a film that the Coen brothers have watched and enjoyed or Burn After Reading straight up wouldn't exist. Yeah, I, I would I would have been shocked if they hadn't, quite yeah. frankly. I, I, I know for my generation, this was a movie that a lot of us really talked about and enjoyed. And, and I hope that a bunch of new people get to discover this now and go like, oh my God, this is a really fun movie. Did you read the book? I never have, no. I was just curious. If, no. You know, because you do that when 
when you're a kid, yeah. or when, when you know when you're an '80s kid, is you you know you see a movie and then go read you know the novelization. You know or how many book Alan book. Dean Foster books I've read <laughs> <laughs> because of that? Yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, this has a, obviously criteria and some extras. A really fun interview on the Dick Cavett show with Walter Matthau, with him sort of talking about his whole life and and uh, about the film he was working on at that point, Little Miss Marker from 1980. Uh, there's a documentary here where the writer and director talk about turning of the original book talk about turning it from a novel to a film that was produced for Criterion and then there's a le- illustrated leaflet with an essay by a critic so it's not the most packed Criterion feature ever but I would still call this you know one of those movies that like is not only worth uh, seeking out to rent or watch but to, to in fact have in your collection I think it's that solid all right so we're gonna move on to two uh, our final two which are ones that I'm not going to talk as much about the movie review because I've already done it on on the site. You can look at our highly suspect reviews or just go in the search bar and uh, for the title of these films, and those will pop up. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about here is the home release of Alien Covenant, which obviously I came out on the side of meh. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was, I was also a little meh. Yeah. I think there's a Stuart Gordon quote that says that a movie should show you at least one thing that you've never seen before. And I felt like Alien Covenant didn't show me anything I hadn't seen before. Yeah. And even the worst of the Alien sequels, even AVP has shown me things I've never seen before. That's true. This was one that felt literally like a sandwich where the beginning and the end are the original Alien. Like, no frills, just straight up the original Alien with Prometheus in the middle of the Alien sandwich. It it opens like the original Alien, it ends like the original Alien, and then there's some Prometheus mythos like... That's that's largely cribbed from Frankenstein, mm-hmm. smack dab in the middle of the film. So I was sort of like, well, I've seen Frankenstein, and I've seen Alien. You're talking about two of my favorite movies of all time. So unless you're coming to play with some of that stuff, unless you're going to subvert something or show me something I've never seen, uh, I, it was it was um, it was greatly disappointing. And I I like Prometheus. Like I I think it's an interesting dark sci-fi adventure movie. I'm also um, mad on Prometheus. Okay. So. Well, I, I like Prometheus and thought that I was going to like Covenant based on some of the responses I saw that said, oh, if you like Prometheus, you'll like Covenant. That was not the case with me. I liked Prometheus and I left very uh, underwhelmed by Covenant, which, which again, I, I don't I don't feel like it gave me anything new. There was actually a point, there's a point in the movie where I, I thought that it was going to uh, go to a place where you discover the fate of uh, Numi, uh, Numi Rapace? Rapace's character. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be something uh, more grotesque that maybe, I, I like, my imagination was going wild that, like, oh, my God, what if they've rigged her to, like, lay alien eggs and that's where the birth of the queen comes from. Is, mm-hmm. And I thought we were going to see, like, some great, like, grotesque reveal. Even that doesn't come everything. And, I mean, that's sort of, like, I can't really fault a movie for not uh, not going where my imagination went, but when you set it up in such a way where she's in the... I know she's in it. She's on the cast list. She's been mentioned as being in it. Something bad happened to her, and that's mentioned. Yeah. You, then you're priming my imagination. And so when you get to the point where the reveal is like, oh, she just died. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, ah. like what? Like I mean, of course, of there ends up being of... more to it than that, but we're never really, we don't really see any yeah. of it. You're just telling us, you know? And I, I thought it, it overly complicated some of the alien mythos. I didn't understand, though, though, 
there's like a I don't know. There's like I, I think that's been the problem with both this and Prometheus is that it overly complicated it. You can expand the universe, and I'm all for that. But you're micro focused on the aliens, yeah, and that's the part I don't understand why they're so deeply focused on those alone. Well, it's, if we talk about expansion, there's still a line in Aliens that every time I watch Aliens, I'm like, I want to know what the hell he's talking about when Hudson talks about is this another bug hunt? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are the other bug hunts? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> they've clearly gone and killed alien life forms before. What are those? Yeah, and and what's that story? Like, I've wanted. I've wanted to see that. And again, I'm not going to fault Covenant for not being that, but I don't necessarily feel that the franchise is out of juice. I think they're just, they're, they're for some reason squeezing a rind instead of picking up a different orange. They're spinning their wheels. Yeah. And I, I, when I watch both of these films, I'm like, this just feels like an, uh, a, a man who's made a lot of great movies, but has had a sizable dry spell who is like, so the one thing you'll let me do anything I want with is this brand that I created for you. Fine, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, which is surmise about existence and life and death and do it not that inventive or telling us anything new we hadn't thought for ourselves way already. I don't find that aspect of this of like, oh, the search for God even mildly interesting with what they do with it ultimately. No. Um, and, you know, they've set up Michael uh, uh, Fassbender as this as basically Satan. You know, he is in in his meta, in in Ridley Scott's metaphor. He is this is you know Lucifer, and R- Fastmender's great, and he's chewing up the dialogue, and he's having fun doing it in a very smart way. It's just plotting wise, I just couldn't get behind it that much. And then it devolves into another haunted house movie. You know, by the end of it, You're like okay, that's a thing. Another one of those like so basically all of that meant nothing. So never mind. Yeah. Oh well, and which is weird because this Blu-ray is packed with shit. I mean, it really is packed with a bunch of stuff. There's almost 20 minutes of deleted and extended scenes. Are they cut back into the film, or is it... No, no, that's a separate feature, and uh, none of it really adds that much. You're not missing very much there. Um, There's a bunch of things that you may have seen online, but they didn't make that even big a deal of marketing them. Well, like James James Franco is in that prologue, and then you see him in the... If you don't watch that prologue and you see him in the movie, you're probably just left going. Why was Wait, James why Franco was there that for two seconds? Franco? Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a four and a half minute thing called the Last Supper on here that which is showing that little prologue with him, which even in, even in, even not in that that much, but it has more of the sort of a what's his relationship to the main character. Uh, and there's a series a thing called Phobos where it's watching all the characters go through fear testing, which is weird. <laughs> They're like, "What are you afraid of?" Okay. I'm not sure why the, they would have done this on the for the corporation, uh, but there you go. And then there's the advertisement for the new Michael Fassbender's model, the Walter model. Uh, there's background uh, a bit, basically as if David was sending a message back to Earth. Hey, here's all the evil stuff I've been up to. <laughs> Showing all his, like, his diagrams and plans, which was the best part of this movie, were the very H.R. Uh, um, Giger inspired or if not directly lifted from like drawings and, and details of like his experiments. Um, there's uh, more background on what happened to Elizabeth. 
uh, that's given here. Uh, there's a galleries collection of all the illustrations we see in the movie. There's a almost hour long master class with Ridley Scott, which is basically a series of linked featurettes uh, and behind the scenes uh, footage interviews with Ridley Scott. There, there's a director's commentary by Scott, which famously has some embarrassing moments on it. If you look up like the best moments from the the Alien Covenant commentary, there's quite a few of like you still don't get it, do you, Ridley? Like moments in it, but I just recommend looking it up. I was like, I'm not going to listen to this. It's not like Schwarzenegger style, is it, where he's describing stuff? No, just like things that's clear he doesn't really understand his own movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. A sizable production gallery, the original trailers. It's a lot of stuff packed into here, but ultimately, I'm keeping this film because I have all the others. Not because I'm probably going to watch it again anytime soon. Let's hope he does a better job with the next one, who's admittedly, after the poor performance of this film theatrically, looks in danger of maybe not even happening. Like, the studio is starting to double-think things and are apparently starting to tell him, no, you can't do that. So, who knows? Maybe we will actually finally get that Alien movie we all would have preferred from the District 9 guy anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's time to let the series, I think, cool a little bit uh uh, yeah agreed our last film is my pick of the week which is uh guardians of the galaxy volume two if you listen to our original review you'll have heard me go on and on and on about how much i thought this was the most fun i had in a theater this year i i thought i could see why some people thought it wasn't quite as good as the original for me i thought this was better than the original i thought it got deeper into the characters and their relationships in a very interesting way and i thought it was more consistently funny and surprising with the imagery that it was presenting to us along the way as well but you guys have already heard what I have to say about it. What did you think of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? I probably didn't like it as much as the first one, and but more of that has to do with narrative, the thrust of narrative drive, not so much... Because it's a movie that I could totally see people... I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with anybody that said that they liked two more than one, mm-hmm. um, because I understand it. But for me, I feel like the movie, there's a lull kind of in the middle of the movie where nothing is sort of happening. Like everyone is just sort of like where they are and they haven't necessarily like come back together. Um, They're waiting for the, basically to understand what Kurt, what's the deal with. Yeah. Kurt there's like a middle 30 minutes. That's, that was to me a little sleepy, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's visually dazzling and I think it's of, you know, it's of a piece. And so far, you know, to me, it, it's even the worst Marvel movie is like, you know, Still, Still great. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I've watched Thor: The Dark World twice, which yeah. is like that's by far my least favorite, and it's still totally eminently watchable. You yeah. know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's and I'm sure it looks. I mean, I haven't seen it on Blu-ray, but I'm sure it looks fantastic. It does. It's, uh, it was a very. That was the first time that I went to um, the new draft house, and there's the scene where they're in Ego's home, and there's these white rooms that are like sort of have like Swiss Swiss cheese holes Mm -hmm. where like beds are and people sort of like sit in these holes in these big white rooms and like the image was impeccable like the white was so 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 white oh yeah when I was watching in the theater I was like man this is going to look really really great on home video and Um, it really does in fact they made a point of putting it out right off the bat with a 4k version of it which makes Perfect sense. Of course they did, because this is a showpiece film, if there ever was one, for your home 4K television set. It's just 
absolutely gorgeous looking. I do not own a 4K TV, but and a, but I, I of course rewatched this like an hour after I got it in the mail on mine. But I also plan on bringing it over to my house friend's house with 4K to watch it again, just because I want to see how how great it looks there. Um, what's your what's what was your take on it watching it a second time? Um, I think like most films I saw that recently. I wasn't quite as swept away as I was the first time in terms of laughing out loud. Cause I was really laughing so loud. The first time I saw it, there's a lot of dialogue I just missed, you know, it was like just having so much fun. And this time I still laughed a lot, but it's always that way with the comedy. The comedy is never going to be as powerful the second time as it is the first. Yeah. I think I wouldn't be surprised if when I revisit it, if my estimation of it doesn't actually improve, hmm. I think I may have been, uh, hyped in a in the wrong way for it, um, and I needed to I needed to step away because there were so many. There's like a new thing in nerddom mm-hmm. where people brag about weeping all the time. Where it's sort of like uh, I saw the Star Wars trailer and I literally can't stop crying. Right. And I'm like, I've never seen a trailer that I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> like. I, like there used to be a G light bulb commercial that would make me weep for some reason, but I think it was because of like the the, the particular piece of classical music they were using with it. But yeah. <laughs> well, the Guardians was that way, where a lot of the hype was like, "Oh, it's better than the first. And when I left, I was a sobbing mess. And I'm like, okay, so I watch it, and I'm like, I'm into it. And it, and it's not that I don't think the emotional beats aren't working on me, but it made me feel a little bit robotic because I'm like. This is not punching me in the gut. Like right. I'm enjoying it, and, I, and it and it's working as a film. But I'm not. This is n- in no way leaving me with like a devastated like. I don't think I've ever felt that way from a Marvel movie. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and I don't think I ever would expect to. I I've, I got to see this so far before like anyone was talking about it on Facebook, of course. Uh, and so I guess I didn't have any of those expectations because yeah. I walked out going like, yeah, I mean the emotional beats they work just fine, but none of them are you totally you know devastated by or at least if you are i'm like really <laughs> you do know it's guardians of the galaxy yeah. right uh, <laughs> and, and again i think I, I think it goes back to like almost like this nerd bragging because you don't see them do the same thing about like dramatic films it's all like very much specific to like like superhero movies and star wars and like things like that where it's like oh i couldn't stop crying and it's well, sort of like but there's stuff out there that's actually sad. You know yeah. that, right? Like, <laughs> like beyond just the ending of Rogue One, like, there's real sad things. Yeah, ending of Rogue One also, I'm just like, I wouldn't have cried at this. I'm kind of surprised people did. I mean, it's fine. I I, I feel some degree of the emotion, but it wouldn't have you welled cold, up cold, heartless bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I will say this. I'm happy that sort of male nerddom has come to the point that everyone is confident, say, like, like enough in there saying, like, it's fine to be masculine and admit that things make you cry now. Although you're right, it's kind of turned into a bragging it, point. Yeah, it's like a contest. But they, like, to me, a, a I'll admit, show. I'm one of those people, like, if a movie, any movie or even TV show actually has a thing where I'm that wrapped up in it that it's sad, I will openly weep. I'm one of those Dude. people who've always been that way. <laughs> so this week, the freaking John Cena cancer survivor video of the kid writing a letter to John Cena. They make John Cena read the letter, mm-hmm. and then the kid comes out from behind the curtain, and John <laughs> Cena gives him a hug, and then the mom comes out. And, like, all the headlines were like, you will not stop crying when you watch John Cena meet this cancer survivor. And I was just like, oh, this is really exploitative. Like, very, like... <laughs> 
oh really like i'll i'll take that challenge (laughs) damn it so i watched it and i could feel it i could feel it i was like oh yeah I could see crying. Here it comes. Like, yeah, it could. It was. I could feel that. It's like somebody they say tugging on the heartstrings, but it really does feel like there's an invisible person going like put a lasso and just start reeling it in. Like okay, you feel the pull. Yeah, there are movies that no matter how many times I watch, it gets me. I'll maybe a mess every single time, but they're never for the most the more you know specific like obviously crying moments. Like I always say, the one that. Sometimes I can't even describe it without getting upset. Is in Jacob's Ladder when have you seen Jacob's Ladder? I've seen Jacob's. It's been a okay. long time. There's it's a been sequence a really long where there he's got a fever and they put him in a bathtub yeah. filled with ice, right. and suddenly he's at home with his uh, with his wife who has since left him and his son who has de- been long since dead. And everything that has happened has just been a dream. And it was just a cold breeze coming in from the window, which somebody left open. And it's just a sweet, very normal family sequence that's not leading up to a big scare or anything. It's this whole – it goes on for long enough. You're like a little confused as a moviegoer because it's not getting into any of the tropes yeah. you expect it to do. And then with no big shock or anything, just a cut. It's over, and he that was all just a fantasy he was having in the tub, that his life was normal, and he's just crying in this tub every time I'm just, like, a mess. And that's not like something, oh, somebody died. It's just yeah. that idea. What if, like, oh, my God. Every- yeah, a movie that there's there's been a couple that did that. Not that they are on the list, but, like. Uh, I had to I had to excuse myself and dash from the the first screening of Big Fish that I went to. I can uh, see that <laughs> because I had just visited my grandfather and it had gone from it was like the moment that the time before I'd visited him he felt vital and I visited him this time and he felt thin and frail and it had only been like a year between and I left Big Fish like I was with friends you know we go to the screenings and they had the rows roped off and everything and it was like oh we gotta go gotta go just like pushing myself out like went out the front exit door instead of like around with everybody else <laughs> and then another weird one that's kind of like the jacob's ladder one where it's so hard to describe to people but it gets me and i don't know i don't know even why because i'm not a drinker mm-hmm. is in leaving las vegas when elizabeth shoe it's towards the end of the movie and she wants to consummate with nicholas cage's character and the only way that she can get his attention is by pouring alcohol over her body, and then he pays her physical attention. Like, then he's interested, and he's, like, licking the alcohol off of her. Right. And her performance in that I find so heartbreaking because she knows that that's the only way that she's going to get what she wants from him, and that moment just crushes me. And, again, it's one of those weird ones where it's like, I really couldn't tell you why. For most people, I know it probably doesn't, but there's something about the acting and the way that that scene is constructed up to that, and everything up to that point. Yeah. That at that point just gets me Sometimes every single time. Sometimes it's perfection in a movie that gets you. We'll yeah. all start to cry because it's just reached such a plateau that it just couldn't be better. That you're like, damn, this is so poignant and perfect. Yeah. Or I, as I famously have said a billion times, I always cry at the end of The Incredibles because it's over. <laughs> I'm always like, no, I want more Incredibles. <laughs> you're getting more Incredibles. I know. I didn't think it would ever happen. Well, let's finish the show up by talking about just real briefly the really fun bonus features here. Although the best thing on here is I 
fold-up poster that comes with it with the whole crew, the whole cast in 70s extreme disco outfits with David Hasselhoff in the, the middle saying Guardians Inferno. And there's, in fact, the music video for Guardians Inferno, which is credited to the Sneepers featuring David Hasselhoff. If you don't believe me how crazy this thing is, just Google it on, on YouTube and you can watch it yourself. And it is... I, I don't I it just seems like one of those things they were drinking after like a day of filming. It's like, you know what we should do? <laughs> and it ended up being a thing that they did, this big rid- ridiculous music video. They stopped doing the shorts, huh? Uh just for now. They said they're coming back to it again. Oh, they are? Uh I know that Faggy had kind of lost interest in them. And now the Russo brothers, who are sort of being brought in where Whedon was originally sitting, are like, we want to start doing those again. It just hasn't actually come to be yet. Sorry about the background cat fighting. What are you going to do? Live with three cats. Uh, There is a little intro with James Gunn. Um, There is a four-part feature, Making of the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's really not all that long. It's like, what? It comes to less than 30 minutes. Um, there's uh, a gag reel that is uh, that with this sort of thing it could have been a lot better. I'm just kind of surprised. Yeah, I find Disney's special features on their on their Marvel discs. I, I would prefer something like the Lord of the Rings discs mm-hmm. where they're like exhaustive. Yeah, um, but they're they are kind of. I mean, they they put. It's sort of like they they it's quantity over quality. It's like a whole bunch of little things, but it, it is all very EPK like and stuff not that, very stuff that looks good on the back of the package. Yeah. but isn't really that great when you get to it. Yeah, um, there's uh, five only five minutes of deleted scenes, but that makes sense. Most big, I mean, on ninety nine percent of this was filmed on a green screen, of course. So. There's only so much that actually gets cut when you're doing that. They're pretty careful about not having a lot they're not going to use. There's a little cute bit with a with a uh, giant statue of uh, a quill. But other than that, it's kind of disposable extended scenes. And the audio commentary with James Gunn, which I didn't get to listen to, but I hear actually is pretty solid. Worth James Gunn is one of those guys who's always fascinating to hear him talk. So yeah, Real quick, let me ask, because I don't, I, I'm just curious from you, what... Are you? I guess you. If you did love the movie, then I guess you're perfectly okay with them changing Peter Quill's dad for the film versus who his dad is in the comics. Not a canon queen in the slightest. Okay, cool. The only time I get upset about them changing something from comics to film is when it is a deeply inherent quality to the character who's in a very important character. Like I had a real problem with the Amazing Spider-Man films because I thought they so deeply changed who Peter Parker was. At, you know, it, one specific example, his relationship with his aunt, yeah. that it he just didn't feel anything like Peter Parker to me. Felt like a totally different character that they wanted him, like a more jet, like a modern day millennial Peter Parker. Like he kind of took away the spirit of what makes that guy's soul work. You know. Um, but yeah, you can change a lot of other stuff. Like the details, I don't care who's, you know, if it was deeply important in the comics who Peter Quill's dad was, I probably would have been like, yes, yeah, yeah, but it's not really. I mean, and honestly, who reads Guardians of the Galaxy anyway? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, love the well, movies. Yeah, but. it's like, and even now, that that character has been altered so much from whatever the original vision was to whatever, like they've definitely aligned and purposefully so the comics to be like the movies. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even even Star-Lord from a characterization standpoint isn't the same character as if you're going back and reading like 70s Star-Lord adventures. is nothing like what's in the comics now. So oh, yeah. you kind of are already, I feel like as a fan at this point, you're already over whatever, because the differences are so huge 
that small things like, oh, he goes his dad is sort of like, well, he doesn't even feel like the same guy, so right. that, that stuff's fine. I, I mean, he's not much like the actual character of Ego from the comics either. No, you know? that's uh, true He's too. kind of a new person altogether, which is fine. Although this film does have the most amount of wildly obscure Easter eggs of probably any Marvel film they've made yet, including, you know, you're wondering at the end, what is Ving Rhames and Michelle Yao doing there for such a tiny, tiny part? It's like, they're the original Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. which will probably come into play at some point in the future films, which yeah. I'm fine with. Totally fine. That and the little thing with the, the big golden egg, everyone was like, that, what was that supposed to that mean? That was my, and see, and that was kind of a mark for me where it's like, it, I, I need to watch it again because I, that was the point of the film in which I was the most excited, and I shouldn't be for an Easter egg. Mm -hmm. Something in the film should have been greater than that moment. Uh -huh. But that moment was the one, and I don't want to spoil it for, I can't imagine anybody listening to this. It's This is the kind of thing where... If you had any intention of seeing it, you would have already seen it. You're not going to listen to this and be like, I've been on the fence about whatever the second Guardian of the Galaxy movie is. <laughs> Honestly, if they care about, if they would have cared what that spoiler is, then they've definitely already seen yeah. this movie. So but that was the moment I popped. That was my yeah. geek out moment was like, oh, oh. And when that, that sting started, I was just like, <laughs> I was so happy. As, and then, uh, as and, we finish up. Who would be your pick to, to play that part? When you they know, I had this uh, conversation with uh, Dave from Latino Review mm -hmm. back when it feels like it's been about three years ago now, because I want to say it was right after Neighbors came out, mm -hmm. that Zac Efron took a meeting with Marvel, and mm -hmm. they never said who or what, and Dave had a short list of who he thought Zac Efron was meeting for, and one of the characters on that short list was Adam Warlock. And I would be perfectly okay with Zac Efron playing Adam Warlock. It's a different type. I think in your head, like in my head, I sort of like, you know, young Peter Weller type where he's kind of odd and slightly alien, but also like fascinating to look at. Charismatic. Yeah. Even, even in his alienness. Yeah. But there's also this idea of he's a golden god. Zac Efron short of having, you know, Caucasian skin color. About his, he's, you know, chiseled from stone. He looks like a freaking sculpture brought to life. So I I'm like, I, it works for me. And and I think he's proven himself as an actor now I away agree. from the high school musical films and all I, that stuff. So. I think he surprised all of us as being that guy that none of us really expected his career to go past the Disney stage and then has proven that he's really good at forming chemistry with other actors. Mm -hmm. Like when he gets the right person to play off of, He's magnetic on screen. And especially if Gunn uses him, because Gunn will as well tap into some of the humor that he's displayed in other movies. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, if, if that becomes reality, I'm totally fine with Zac Efron as Adam Warlock. I think that's a solid answer. Yeah, I don't think he's going to get Walter, Walton Goggins or something like that. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm always like, when is Walton Goggins going to be in fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. and, and I have no idea who he'd be in a Marvel film. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody. He's got to be a villain. Not Adam Warlock. Yeah, no, he's got to be a... He's gotta He'd be, be a, a decent gambit if his hairline wasn't as receding as it was. Makes you wish Marvel had Fantastic Four, because I'm like... I'm, I'm already thinking, like, he'd be a pretty good, like, Molecule Man or, like, somebody like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, see him, I see him as a villain. Yeah, almost I see him as, like, one. Jigsaw in the Punisher uh, TV series. Yeah, but... 
We'll have to wait to get all that information because I don't think Marvel's forthcoming on, well, Walton Goggins, obviously. But I think it's going to be a while before we hear anything about who Adam Warlock is actually going to be. But regardless, we are done with this episode. I would like to thank Mr. John Golson for joining me. John, do you want to tell people where you would like them to find you online? I am on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. Right now, I don't have a whole lot of output. Uh, Obviously, we talked about comics today, so a little bit of cross-promotion. Uh, I am a regular co-host on a, on a comics podcast called Giant Size, uh, but other than that, I'm I'm most active uh, in my own home. <laughs> and don't you don't want people to find you there? <laughs> <laughs> Do not come to John's house looking for him. He he would be displeased. But you can find him on his Twitter account. And if you're in Austin, you might be able to see him do stand, uh, live comedy. Yeah, yeah. At the group. New Movement Theater, uh, at the first two Saturdays of the month at 9 p.m. I'm in a group called the Neighborhood. So if you do live here locally. Uh, I am doing that on a regular basis. Thanks so much, John. And I will be back in probably about a week with another new co-host, Adam. So until then, enjoy. Please tell us what you like, what you don't like. And don't forget to use those links to buy our, our movies. It really, really helps. Thanks. Oneofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard the subscription side subscribe and listen to great podcasts like the breakfast pub the original gentleman and the watch a movie with us series head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel <laughs>